Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. Hello, listeners. You're in for a real treat today. We've uh, we've been trying to schedule this this podcast for a number of months now, and I'm so thrilled that Mario has squeezed us into his schedule. So, Mario, welcome. Wendy, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. All right. So you are founder of the Athena Group Capital, founder of International Blockchain Consulting, co-founder of We Are Growth Hackers, founder of Go Global, founder of IBI Ventures, founder of Fruity, founder of Optimum Appliances. You have founded a lot of things. So normally I start out uh, at the beginning of the interview and I ask about, you know, what are the your greatest fears about going global? But I I don't know if you have any fears for what you've accomplished. I'm actually a pretty conservative entrepreneur. I hate taking risks. At least I hate it now. Um, so even though I have a few companies in very different fields from e-com, kitchen appliances, to being a partner at a law firm, an investor in crypto, just stepped up as a CEO of NFT Tech, which is a company that's going public in, in a few weeks. Um, so they're very different companies. Um, and there's a few more. But I, I don't take, like taking risk. And that's why I will never be a billionaire. Like I can guarantee you, I'll never be a billionaire. I'll never even have a few hundred million dollars. I think I, don't, I won't reach more than a hundred mil, which is like pretty good, of course. But I know that and I'm, I, for a fact, no, no possibility because I hate taking risk. Um, so I have a lot of fears about going global. It's just too much risk with it. But I still do it because I get bored in life. Okay. So most people don't start their own business because the risk is involved, but you've started so many. Have you ever held a job as an employee? I did for a few weeks um, as a waiter and then I quit and then worked as a cook in KFC and then I quit. So that lasted a few weeks in total. Um, look, I was, I was in university uh, when I saw a video about someone that made their first million at age 14. I was studying banking and finance in Australia. My path forward was, you know, become a banker, do well, and then start making money in your 30s and 40s. But when I saw that video of a, of a young 14-year-old millionaire, I'm like, you know, maybe I can do something when I'm young. Then I discovered entrepreneurship and I dove in head first. I started door knocking. I launched my first business freely and uh, my businesses grew from there. So how old were you when you start, started your first business? That was in college? 20, I think, yeah. I dropped out of university in the second year, banking and finance. I was doing well, um, but I just dropped out when I saw that video. And you never went back to school then. So you just, you saw that, that lit your excitement and you, and you moved forward. And one thing I did right since getting into business was following the money. So I would test different things. I would sell, when I was selling door to door, I would try different products. When something works, I just double down on it. Jim Collins talks about it in his book, Good to Great. He's like, throw a few pebbles. When a pebble hits, shoot a cannonball. So that was my strategy. I would test different things. Something would work and I would just go all in. Oh, that's interesting. I have never heard that. Shoot a pebble and if it all works, shoot a cannonball. But that's exactly what entrepreneurs do is look for what's working and then double down on it. I like that. And it's, it sounds simple, but it's so effective. Like, again, um, surprisingly, many people don't do it. They either keep beating a dead horse or they try something, it works, but they still move on to the next thing, which is severe shiny object syndrome. Uh, which so many entrepreneurs have. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so back to fear. So you said that you do have a fear of going global because there's risks there. Define, first, I want to know how you define risk, and then we'll get into fears. My I'm a very analytical person. My definition of fear is, is what's the worst that could happen? So if I'm expanding to a new country and I need to buy a lot of stock, let's talk about e-com. 
and that stock is essentially all the cash I have in the bank or I have to take a loan, probably won't do it. But at the same time, if, um, if I'm going to a new country and I can ship from my existing country to the new country, even though I might not make a profit initially, then I would do it. And that's how I started. Australia to the UK. UK was my first international country other than New Zealand, which I won't count. And I would ship from Australia to customers in the UK that would take a while, which doesn't make financial sense because I'm not making any money on every order. But for me, that was a good way to test the market with a low risk before going all in and buying stock for the UK. And why was it UK? Was it language? Was it the agreements between the countries? Language and the same voltage. So US needed a different plug, different voltage. So I couldn't ship there. So US, we still haven't, I'm talking about my first company, Freely, which is still around in over 30 countries. At the US, we've just, it's been years now, and it's only this year that we're expanding to the US because it's a very tough market, very lucrative, very, very lucrative and, and massive, but also very tough. Uh, Europe and Australia were a, a bit easier because our main competitor, Vitamix, is an American company. Competing against them in their home turf was more difficult. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so there was a lot of strategy there too, is yeah, you could go into the US, but you were going to have competition there where in the other countries, you weren't Less fighting competition. the competition, but you still yeah, went. So Vitamix, was, Vitamix was still in Europe and in Australia and, and, and all over the world. They're a global company, a US company, but their presence in non-US countries was very limited compared to the US. Okay. And so now you're coming into the U.S. You're going to take that on? Yeah. So now we do have a, a budget in place where we can buy stock because for the U.S. it's hard to sell things on pre-order or to ship from overseas. You just have to buy stock. You have to commit. And then you have to build it long-term, giving away products to influencers, uh, review websites, etc. So now we're in a position where we can do that. Okay. So you had to build up enough mass in the other countries before you decided to enter the US market? I didn't have to, but it just mitigated my risk and it goes back to me being a risk averse person. Okay, okay. So on the scale of risk, which is so funny, I read some research about risk and people who do, you know, like climb half dome without, <laughs> you know, they say that they're risk averse but the rest of us are looking at that. Well, you're rock climbing up half dome. Of course you can handle risk, but it's how you define it. They're minimizing risk by making sure that they've climbed all the other mountains. They trust their teammates. They trust. So you're, you're a very big risk taker by what you've done, dropping out of school, starting all these businesses, but how you do it is the analytics to mitigate the risk. Two, two ways I can answer this. Um, first, is it really risk-taking? It's going into uncomfortable directions in life. But if you look at it from a logical perspective, it's less risky than you think. Like I was pretty young. Um, okay, maybe dropping out of uni so early was a risky strategy. Maybe staying in uni and doing this on the side could have been a, a, a less risky strategy. True. That one I agree with. But at the same time, like everyone looks at Richard Branson as being a very risk, uh, a big risk-taker. His first company, Virgin Airlines was probably considered as his biggest risk. When he purchased the first airlines, he made an agreement with, I think it was Boeing, that if it doesn't work, his airlines doesn't work, he can still return it back to them and get his money back or a percentage of his money back. Right. Okay. So he really mitigated the risk by not having a huge downside by giving it a try. And then what he had to do was the marketing and the operations. Exactly. Like it looks risky for, for people from the outside, but then when you dig into the details and you look at the numbers and, and, and how he's approached things or how other entrepreneurs approach things, not all of them take risks. Warby Parker, massive company. They stayed in their full-time job until their company was doing tens of millions of dollars. Now I'm not saying everyone doesn't take a risk. You can take a risk and still make a lot of money. Um, Elon Musk is a perfect example. His risks are risks I cannot even fathom. What people don't understand is for every Elon Musk, there's thousands, if not tens of thousands of similar people with similar capabilities that haven't achieved success, but the press doesn't talk about them. No one reads about them. No one interviews them because they haven't achieved success. So they're hard to meet. Um, there was a podcast that what they, all they did was interview people that almost achieved success, but failed. The podcast failed. 
because people didn't want to hear failures. I like to look at failures because then it gives me an idea of the reality of things. Like, what does the other side of that fence look like? What, did, what does it look like if my ventures don't succeed, if my risks don't materialize? Um, and that, that analytical approach allows me to avoid being a billionaire or reduce my likelihood of being a billionaire significantly, um, but increasing my likelihood of being successful because I've mitigated the risks that could take me to zero. Oh my gosh. So there's so much there, you know, so we still, you know, so there's fears, there's motivation and um, what was the other one? The, you know, the, the, the billionaire. So let's, let's start with your fears. So what have been your biggest fears since you dropped out of uni and started running the companies or fears that you've run in across the way, particularly with, you know, it is the global marketing show. So with going global. Yes. Um, Cash, like I, first I didn't think my business that was doing well would actually make it. I thought Freely was like a one year thing. I make some money and that's it. I didn't know it was going to be here years later. And um, I would treat cash with such value. Every cent mattered like crazy. I'm, I, then I became the opposite and I started spending money like crazy. But back then I would treat money with so much value um, and thinking Always like worst case scenario, including going global. Like I would go global, but I'm like, yeah, there's no way it's going to last. Like I wouldn't care much about the brand. I'm like, how can I sell the most products? Now that's a risky approach because then you're jeopardizing the brand. But at the same time, you can build a brand and then the industry goes to crap or a competitor underprices you and beats you. So I decided to go down for the first two years protecting cash. And then when I'm like, holy crap, like this is going really well. Then I started doubling down on the brand and, and as I expand globally, I take care of that reputation of the brand in every country. And now I obsess over that brand in all my companies. So my fear was cash. My fear right now, um, cash flow is still a fear. Like it's always there. It's, I, I, cannot, I can't even put myself in the shoes of people that just put everything on the line to buy stock to expand to a new country or, or launch a new business. It's so hard to live with that risk. It's so stressful. Uh, and I, I just can't, can't, I'm the one that's stressing my life. And so you, have you been all self-funded? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Every, yeah. Every okay. So that's interesting. So the people who go out and put everything on the line and then try to get VC funding would be a risk profile that you wouldn't want to do. You, you strategically grow them or slowly grow them or pay attention to what's working. Yeah, I bootstrap them. So what I do is I start small and I just follow the money. Again, I would just try to get cash flow in. Now, again, going down the path of VC funding where you don't make money instantly, you, 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 know, you delay gratification, you delay getting a return, but you aim really high because VCs want to 10X, 100X their money. So you aim really right. high. This is part of the game. Yeah. Right. Um, I, and, and yeah, grow quickly. Don't worry about cash flow. Just use cash, burn cash from the VCs and grow at all costs. Um, 90 something percent of businesses that try to raise funding fail. And then 90% of the, over 90% of the businesses that do raise funding fail. So over 90% of businesses that try to raise funding fail in raising money. They don't manage to raise capital. And then mm -hmm. from the 10% that do, or five, 10%, another 90, over 90% fail as a business. I can't, I, I just can't fight those, those money. There's just so much against me. It's too hard. <laughs> but now I'm on the other side of that fence. Like I'm funding those projects um, yeah. and I'm, I'm investing in those projects. But I, I even as an investor, I'm, I'm always, again, risk averse, like trying to invest in projects that already have revenue or that have a track record and not invest in the next Google or the next Facebook. It's just too risky. It's more, okay. Too so you're more the, you know, the Warren Buffett kind of strategy, find a good operating business, giving them some working capital, let them grow by making smart decisions and hard work rather than looking for the Google. Yeah, long-term, very long-term, a business that I understand, a business that makes sense and a business that doesn't have to become Google, but it's as long as it's a healthy business doing good cash flow, I'm fine with that. Now, it doesn't mean I haven't invested in businesses like I invested in a company called Filecoin. Um, and they, what they're planning to do is crazy um, and, and very highly likely to fail. But if they succeed, they succeed really, really big. Um, so I'm still investing in such businesses, but 
I prefer not to go down that path. Right. Okay. So you were talking about the first, you know, couple of years you protected cash and then you, you mentioned you take care of the brand and watch the brand in all the countries. Can you talk a little bit about that, about, you know, your brand positioning, your messaging and how you did that across countries, cultures and languages? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, localization is so key. Like we are in a global country, a global planet, but localization is a, a, a competitive edge over your competitors. Because if you have the same messaging um, and the same way of promoting your product, the same communication as any other country, each country is the same, treating it the same, it will work. But it won't work as well as localizing it. So in every country, we try to understand the market. We try to target the right competitors. We try to, 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 to use the copy that would resonate the most with that audience. Um, and that improves our conversion rate. It's worth the effort. It's worth getting copywriters that are local in that country. Um, again, it's just building. You're building moats around your business. The more of these things you do, like localizing, building a, a good, having a good product, um, having good copy in general, uh, whatever the language is, um, having a good LTV and AOV, average order value, lifetime value. So all these things that we talk about, they're all building a moat around your business that makes it harder for your competitors to beat you. And localization is just another strong moat. Okay, so local, so it, it's interesting to hear you talk about localization that way because you're really talking about a multinational strategy rather than a global strategy. So when you go into a market, you hire new copywriters. You don't take the research that you've done for the positioning and uh, for your, for global positioning. Both, both. So we actually use everything. So we copy the website to, let's say we're going to Denmark. We copy the, the main website to Denmark and then we get a local copywriter to amend it. I um, comparisons to competitors and do the SEO. You have to do local SEO. Um, and then start working with local influencers as well. That's part of localization beyond just the copy. So we start with the, with the global website and then we start working on that one. Okay. Okay. Because that's where what we do for companies is that they have their website and then we would translate it, but working with a marketing expert that would be able to make it local. So rather than using a global agency, you'd go in and find your own person in country. Freelancer, exactly, exactly. And, and we try to avoid an agency just because we want someone to get so ingrained into the business that I want, we want them to know the product like the back of their hand because then they understand which competitors to target, what copy to use, what marketing strategies to apply because they know the product so well, which we think it's, it's paramount. So you find a marketing content writer that has to be uh if we're, we're if bilingual. we're lucky we try to find a copywriter yeah yes so and if we're lucky they're also good at communicating so they can find us influencers and communicate and build relationships with local influencers which i think is a very powerful strategy and still underrated okay so talk to me about influencers i have heard so much about influencers and recently I've been hearing more about companies can build an influencer. They can take somebody that matches their target market and build them into an influencer by doing the marketing around them. So when you're talking influencers, tell me more about that. Someone that has a relevant audience that cares about what they have to say, that is interested to collaborate and promote our product. So we don't build influencers. Um, because it's just we're doing the work for them where the value is actually having an, as someone with an existing audience that already trusts them. They have their attention, their audience's attention. That's willing to promote our product. Okay. So how would you find somebody like that? And this uh, is for consuming. So now you're talking about consumer products. Fru Fruity, which is the Vitamix competitor so it's like a, a blender high-powered blender that you can put things into that can make it into to drinks or whatever you want right exactly we've got also juices and like a, a cooking machine thermal cook but the blender was the first product 
Okay, so juicers, blender, cook products. Okay, so you're talking about those kind of products. And what kind of influencer would you look for? Like what would be the criteria? Um, vegans, health-oriented health chefs, chefs in general. But you know, we start with the very, we start with very targeted. We start with like vegan uh, influencers that use blenders. Then we go with any influencer that uses a blender, keto, whatever. And then we go to chefs um, and then we go to, to um, um, athletes or fitness influencers. So then you go broader and broader as long as the metrics make sense. Obviously, you don't want to go too broad and go to a celebrity because the metrics just don't usually add up. We try to target more. We'd rather have like 100 niche influencers rather than one big celebrity one. And then how do you reimburse or reward them for being an influencer? So it's two ways. Uh, usually we give them commission on every sale and they're usually smaller influencers that agree. We also offer payments for, for promotions, etc. We don't mind how we, like the structure of how we compensate them doesn't matter much to us. What matters to us is the metric. So if we pay them $1,000 cash, like just pre, pre-payment, or we pay them $100 per order and they make 10, we still pay $1,000, just structured mm-hmm. differently. So we just look at the metrics at the end of the day. How many sales and how much we paid them, whatever the structure is. So you go into, so you said you're in 30 countries? We're probably well, hitting 40 soon, yeah, or over 40 by now. Okay, so say you're in 40 countries, then you're looking for 100 influencers in each country. We're looking for gradually. So we do country by country. We haven't got influencers in all the countries, and we haven't done the work in all the countries yet. Because first step, we just open a website and run ads to it. And then we start adding influencers to improve conversion rate and increase sales. Oh, fascinating. Okay. And then your research is really who are, once you do the ads, you might pick up some influencers from there, but then building the relationships with them. And are, do they speak English too with you? Or do you have people on the ground? No, that then negotiate? not always. Yeah, we have someone that does customer service in the country, in every country, local customer service, uh, and a local phone number, and that person will be the one communicating for influencers on our behalf. So they'll be translating everything. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, and then, so of your other, does so this works in B two C? Does it work in B two B? B two B is different, very different. Uh, we haven't gone down the influencer path for B2B. So which of your companies is B2B and what are you doing for that? Oh, there's a few. So I'll probably give you this one. So I have a lot of crypto consulting firms in in B2B, but they all speak English, um, most people. We were about to expand to Korea where we need to hire and open someone in Korea and open an office there, but we didn't go down that path uh, yet. Um, But I'll give you one, North Equities right now. North Equities does... um, offers services to publicly listed companies to boost the value of their stocks. And Run that um, by me again? We're gonna start a, they do what? So we offer services to increase the value of their shares because they're publicly listed. So they give us shares, let's say $50,000, $100,000 worth of shares, and then we'll do PR, we'll do marketing, we'll do growth hacking, um, various things to boost the value of those shares. So you can look at it as investor relations 2.0. <laughs> Um, That's hysterical to me. So it's not company performance, but it really is getting out to the market and telling everybody how great the company is to boost their price. Exactly, because you, you, performance still plays a role. But if you perform really, really well, but no one knows about it, then the value will not show in the price of the stock. So it's similar to a, to a podcast, like we're doing a podcast now. You can have a really, really good podcast. But if, if you don't do the effort in getting the word out there, telling people about it. You don't go on, like a lot of podcasters, they go on other podcasts. I have my own show. I go on other shows and, and offer them value. So people, they know about my show. And it's the same about these publicly listed companies. Like if they sit in their little cocoon, they do great, but they don't communicate. I'll give you this fact, a really fascinating fact, very fascinating. Hedge funds that outperform hedge funds that out-communicate, they do worse. What I mean by this if a hedge fund has better returns from their investments, they make more money for their investors and you compare them to hedge funds that make less money, but over communicate to their investors. The ones that over communicate 
get more investors and investors stay there for longer, even though the other one's making more money. Humans. That, we're fascinating creatures. We are, which goes to show you the power of marketing and why you need to do it right around the world. Right. So your positioning, your marketing positioning is very smart for North Equities because it's what the customer cares about, increasing the value of the shares. Really, other companies would say we offer PR to this. And so they're talking about what they do, but you've come up with good positioning. So you could take, you're oh. looking for the companies that are performing well that need PR and that will help increase the value of their shares. But at that point, you don't Perfectly. really. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, now that we understand that, which I like your positioning, go ahead. The B2B marketing, you don't get influencers. What do you do for that? What we're going to be doing for that is essentially getting one person that speaks the language, teach them what our service offering extremely well, and then looking for partners. Like you can call them influencers, but they're not the influencers, the typical influencers that we have for e-com, where someone has a big following on the social media platform. Those influencers are people on Wall Street that are respected, that publicly listed companies listen to them, that know a lot of these. It could be someone that takes, it could be an office that takes companies public, for example. That's the influence that we have because they have influence over these publicly listed companies. So we are going down a similar strategy with that business as well. And that's B2B. Okay. So that's more of the creating an influencer. You find somebody that you can partner with, but then they give you lots of introductions. So you're yep. creating an influencer there by teaching them everything you're doing. I'd say, yes. So I'd say, we're using their influence to make them into an influencer. Yes. Yes. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. Right. So it's who you have rather than how many they reach. Yeah. Cause it's, even if they, have, they reach a lot of people, but they're not willing to work with us, understand our product and collaborate. Their influence is just going to waste. And like we have one guy, his name is, Christian Fraioli is based in Italy, I think, or, or Spain, I can't remember. And um, he has that influence. But we had to go deep and have him join our team and pay him to make it worth his while to leverage his influence for us. Almost like, like it's like even he can employ influencers. We have one lady called Amrita. She's an employee at our company at Fruity. And she had influence and we just employed her because we thought she could bring a lot of value and she can extend and expand her influence. So Christian Fraioli is the same thing. Um, so hiring people with influence is another strategy you could use instead of just hiring someone who's capable and that's it. Hire someone who's capable and has in that influence. You get that bonus. Now, did you hire him as a full-time person or did you hire? I it's think a so. Uh, uh, I, I'm, not sh I, I'm not sure actually how they hired him. I'm not sure. One I'm not or the sure, other. but I, I mean, what's, what's the theory when you're hiring an influencer like that? Because sometimes they, they have influence because of the position they hold. So if you hire them away, they're no longer in that position. But sometimes but many, there's a conflict. A lot of the interest. Yeah, a lot of times the, the, the influence does stay. Like if I'm, a, I'm the CEO of a bank, uh, okay, I was very involved in crypto. I'm a partner at a crypto law firm. I've got my crypto consulting firm. I'm an, I'm an investor in the space as well. Yeah. And plus I'm very active on a platform called BitCloud, which is a crypto social media platform. Um, so I'm very active in the crypto space. Now I'm going to step up as CEO of NFT tech, which is an investment vehicle that will be investing in crypto that's going public. So I've taken that position of CEO and I'm no longer, you know, I'm still a partner at a law firm, but I'm not doing anything there. I'm not running IBC myself, but my influence is still there. People know me, people trust me. I've built that influence. And I think moving from job to job doesn't mean losing that influence. Like I'm sure you have a lot of connections from the podcast and from your business as well. Uh, Wendy, I'm pretty confident that if you start a new business that can bring value to those people at your current business, customers and partners, you can still pick up the phone and speak to them because you have that relationship and you have that trust and respect. 
Yes. So you're talking about entrepreneurs that you can do that. But if I look at influencers in my space, they'd be a lot of the people that do, they're hired by the government and they do consulting with companies to help them export. Now there'd be a conflict of interest and they couldn't do that. So I could hire them away and they could say I was formerly there, but they couldn't hold that position and be an influencer for me. Exactly, and they can't go back to the people that had influence about, uh, over before because of the conflict of interest. So yeah, that, that is a barrier. So if someone that has conflict of interest, then obviously it won't work. So you have to hire someone who, like Christian, for example, has his own agency. Okay. Is doing just a one-man one man band, doing okay, not from like a, a large company where they will have clauses to avoid um, uh, you know, non-compete clauses and all that. So... Um, yeah, so this is something you have to keep in mind. And it doesn't have to be direct competitors. Like we help publicly listed companies go up in value. We can hire someone that helps companies launch go public through an IPO or, or a SPAC. That's like, they're not doing the same thing, but they still target and they have the respect of the same audience. Right, right, okay. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's still influencer. So do you hire salespeople in either of the business or do you do much more through influencers? Christian is an influencer and he's helping us in sales. So it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. Salespeople can be influencers and we prefer them to be influencers as well. Um, but we do both in brief. We, have, we call the influencers channel partners and the salespeople are salespeople. Okay, so it's just another avenue to support. It's more the influencer is helping with, they're almost, they're your ABM connection or your, your marketing face. Well said. Okay. As I stumble through it. <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, you know, I had that list of questions that I was talking about earlier that we had so much. So your, your motivation, what motivates you? I mean, why not just stay in Australia and New Zealand? Why did you start going to other countries why do you start multiple countries i mean companies i realized that you know there's a lot of personality tests you could do to understand yourself and i think it's really important you do that because then you understand what brings you happiness what you enjoy doing and then you can double down on that mm -hmm. and it's important to peel that onion to understand really what you enjoy so someone could look at me and say this guy is an entrepreneur he loves business but then you peel the onion again and again and again. I did that with, I'm not sure if you know Les Brown. There's a, so he's a famous motivator. And now we were chatting and he, uh, and there's a video about it. And he starts peeling that onion. And we conclude that what I really like is momentum and growth. That's what really drives me. Momentum oh, and growth. Oh, okay. So business and dancing, which is my hobby. I dance around the world. Business I've seen dancing, your pictures just, on Instagram. You look fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And they, these are just ways for me to get momentum and growth in life, which is what eventually leads to happiness. And that's what I've been chasing since um, before university. Isn't that interesting? So once you figure out momentum and growth, that's why, so it's personal growth, like continuing to learn, continuing to challenge, continuing to grow yep. the business, continuing to get better at dancing. So when you pick something to do, you're not going to stagnate or you're, you'll get out of it. I need something that actually fulfills that, that fulfills that either personal growth or now it's more the momentum that like traveling to new countries, going to festivals, dancing till five in the morning. That all gives me that, like building a personal brand, building a business, making money. All these like gives me that adrenaline rush that wakes me up every morning out of bed. Okay. And how much is, of it is making money? A lot less than you'd expect, but a lot more than you'd expect as well. Because it's not the money itself, it's what comes with it. The money allows me freedom to chase momentum and growth. Like if I had... If I just had the right to, to do what I want when I want without actually needing money. So let's say I was the son of royalty or mm -hmm. I was the prince of whatever country. And then I have that ability to do whatever I want whenever I want. Then I don't really care that much about building a business. I care more maybe building a brand, making a difference, building a charity. But all those are new things. Traveling to Africa, building a school. That for me 
is momentum. And that actually I like, I want to do that. Okay. So, so making the money has been a means to an end is because it allows you to build more momentum. So the more money you have, the more momentum you can build across different things. Exactly. The more freedom I have to do what I want when I want. Okay. So where are you now? Dubai. Okay. And you're there for business or that's where you live? Oh no, I just travel. Um, next, I could go to Colombia. So what I do is I just go to different countries. Uh, I started, I've been traveling for seven, eight years nonstop. Uh, seven years, I think. And um, what I did as of last year, COVID, is I rent big places. So you can see here, it's like if I walk around, it's just two stories. It looks like a castle. Like if you see the outside, it's a massive place. And I've got 12 of my employees here with me, employees, business partners, colleagues. And um, we all work together in these big places. And are they based in Dubai or they're traveling with you? Travel with me. <laughs> so you travel all over the world with an entourage. Uh, yeah, the entourage is not an entourage because sometimes it changes. In Turkey, we had different people than we have now. Half of them were. Some people are, are the same. Like my business partner, Bob, he's always with me. And my dancing partner, and, and she works with me as well. Jennifer, she's always with me. So they've been with me in Turkey and here. One, another, another partner of mine, MK. So you could say three, four people usually we're together and then others just come and go. Cause I have, you know, if you look at my employees over a hundred, so there's always going to be someone that's willing to come and go. And so the offer is open is, Hey, we're going to this country. If you want to come and work here, you can, otherwise you work from home. Correct. And, and we have an office in Australia. Oh, okay. So that's, I was wondering about that. So you have an office in Australia but anybody at any level at any time can come stay wherever you are. Yeah, they're all, I don't know if you hear them in the background, they're all in the living room. There's a whole group of them. And so how long will you stay in each country? Um, I don't know. It just depends. Like now I just can't be bothered traveling, um, but we're looking at potentially going to Colombia later this year. So it just depends. It depends. Um, and you'll make the like decision. We were in Turkey. We make a decision based on so many factors that come out of nowhere. Like we were in Turkey and then, um, and then my business partner breaks his leg on New Year's Eve last year. I remember and he that. Yeah. Turkey. Yeah. And we get him out of Turkey to Lebanon cause that's his home country. And then we all go to Lebanon and spend time there and rent a big place there and then Dubai and then probably Colombia or, or Spain. So it just always varies dancing. I'm coming back to dancing, traveling around cause COVID starting to ease. So that means I'm spending a lot of time in, in, in Europe. So I might maybe go back to Turkey, go to Cyprus um, or go to Spain. Um, I want to expand into the U.S. So, and I want to meet a lot of people in the U.S. that I work with. So I might go to Colombia and then I can travel to the U.S. really easily. So yeah, it just varies all the time. So how long were you in Turkey? Uh, about six months. So during COVID, we rented a big villa on the beach, um, about eight, nine people there. And we stayed there for about eight months. Okay. And then, and so you've been in Dubai, what, about two or three months after you were in Lebanon? So I'm a Dubai resident as well, a tax resident. So Dubai will probably be a permanent place that I need to have a place in. So I might have, keep a place in Dubai because um, I moved from Australia to Dubai for, for various reasons, tax being one of them. And um, yeah, so I, I'm a permanent resident there. And do you have family still back in Australia? Yes, most of them are there. Yeah. So you circle back every so often to see them or do they join you? No. No, no. We just, we, we just call. <laughs> my, my, brother, my brother used to be, so I've got my brother and my mom. I speak to my mom every day, um, um, business usually. And then my brother um, used to work with me as well. So my mom and my brother joined my company. And um, my brother used to work with me. Uh, but now he, be, he wants to, his dream is to become a police officer. So now he's a police officer and we don't even speak anymore. Like he's so happy. He's been a police officer for like a month. He's in, he's in heaven. Oh, good for him. Oh, that's yep. fantastic. Yeah. So you called Dubai home, but you really live lots of places for probably three, four, five, six months. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right. And can I ask how old you are now? Uh, uh, it's a mystery that I keep. So there's three mysteries that I keep. If you Google online, a lot of people are asking about it. Net worth, uh, which 
you graciously don't ask yeah, um, yeah. my my past uh, before before business my life and then my age um before, initially i kept it as a secret because i'm like i was too young when i started my business so i didn't want anyone knowing how old i am just imposter syndrome and then people started asking so often but i'm like you know what i'm gonna keep it that way and then on clubhouse i used to run a lot of big rooms on clubhouse you used to have 10,000 people listen to me every day seven days a week and then it was became a mystery a buzz everywhere and then i ty lopez <laughs> Ty, Ty Lopez used to come into my room and we chat and he does the same. He doesn't talk about his age and it becomes like a massive mystery. He's like, Mario, keep it that way. It, it just, it, 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 it will just get so many people chattering that it's like free PR. So I'm like, all right, I'll do that. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Okay. I wouldn't have asked if uh, I didn't do that. It's just, <laughs> you know, we're recording this yeah. on video and I'm, I'm just, I listen to the life that you're living and what, and when I was younger and had my first business, you know, I started that I was in my mid twenties. So I was late compared to you. I would have loved to have traveled all over the world and lived the life that you're doing, but we didn't, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, you know, zoom. We didn't have, you know, WhatsApp. So it just, wasn't possible you had to have a, a location to do it so it's just it's just fascinating face to face face to face was so important back then and i found out the hard way that is still so effective yeah that meeting people face to face changes the dynamic yeah Oh, it absolutely does. It abs Although I met, I'm in a EO entrepreneurs organization, and today I met for the first time a woman that I've gotten to know over the year because I joined EO last March when everything shut down. Timing was just bad, so all my relationships have been over zoom or video calls and so i met her and it was like i had known her because i said oh it's nice to meet you in person finally she's like you know we had to stop and think about that that really was the case so it is it is better but it's not the same as toasting with a glass of wine or you know breaking bread together or whatever you know it's that those extra longer conversations that you have i've worked with people that i have never met for years and wish yeah. to work together um, and I've got employees that I've never met. I do go on tours every once in a while, every year maybe, where I go to different countries just to meet my key team members. Um, but I've got like my, my, the person that runs many of my companies, her name is Andrea Mayer. We've been working together for like five years, six years. And she's based something now in Germany. She was in the US and, and, and Austria. We met two or three times max. And once in Vegas, once in Germany, I think twice, that's it. And she runs my companies. Um, so it's not necessary to meet people, but I know that if you meet them, it does just take it a step further to being more personal. Right. But then again, I had one guy, I had one business partner, his name is Mayur. I met him in person in LA, he's in the US. And a few months later, he scanned me and I lost millions. I, my company almost went bankrupt after the scam. So it, even meeting people doesn't mean like it's, that's it, you're done, you're safe, you're, you're set. You can meet them, everything could be good, and it's still, oh my God, it's shit. So it's always important to do the due diligence and all that. I know we're digressing a fair bit, but it's, um, it's been an interesting topic for me. I've learned that over the last two, 16, 24 months. You know, you might uh, be interested in talking to Marty from Dancing Dog Vanilla. I recorded a podcast with him. I can certainly send it to you when we release it. He's got a global company where he sources vanilla from local farmers in Indonesia, and he sells the vanilla in 10 different countries, including Whole Foods here in the United States. He has never done one contract. He does everything by a handshake and a person's word. It's and crazy. He said out of all the years he's been running this business, only once it didn't work. And his attitude is you have a conversation. If something goes wrong, you, um, you talk about it. And if it's still not right, you talk about it. And he said in all those years, only once it didn't work. I know. I saw your eyes open wide when I said no contracts. Yeah, so. I, I, look, I was the same. I was the same, but I just learned the hard way how important contracts are. Um, I, I'd, I'd say two things. When it's a product, no matter how, what contracts you signed, etc., if a product doesn't sell, they'll try to find a way to break the contract. Right. And if the product sells and they're happy with it and they have the relationship, there's no reason to have a contract because the incentives are aligned. They're making money because the product's working and the seller's making money. So incentive alignment is more powerful than any contract. 
Yes, that's basically what he's finding too. Like he doesn't, he looks for one person to distribute in each country. He gives them full support um, and helps them sell. Yeah, so that's interesting that you say that. So what do you see that incentives for selling in the countries vary or your contracts pretty similar? Humans are humans. So the incentives are pretty similar. Like, hey, sell our product and we both make money. That's like such a basic incentive. Um, if it's a team member, you're partnering with someone, bringing him into your team, you have to understand what is it they want. Do they want freedom like you? Do they want to live life like you? Do they want a stable life? Do you know, they prefer being an employee and just having that safety? Do they prefer living the, 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 the entrepreneurial life? And then you, you come up with an agreement, a partnership agreement with aligned incentives. I do that a lot with team members and business partners that I have. Um, so aligning incentives applies across the board and it's, it's relatively the same in different countries because again, we are dealing with the same creature, just different languages and cultures. And do you speak any other languages? I do. I speak French and I'm learning Arabic as well because I was born in Lebanon and I migrated as a kid. So I've lived in Australia all my life. Um, but I'm learning Arabic again because I'm spending some time in Lebanon and, and Dubai. And uh, I speak French fluently because I was raised in a French school with a, with a French-speaking family. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, all right. And then do you work with interpreters when you go to other countries when you don't speak the language? I don't do much. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't do any tourism at all. I, I don't have a life outside of work and dancing. Nothing. I don't go. No, but I mean, like, if you're doing business, business, yeah. I don't. I don't meet many people either. Very See? rare. I, I, I'm usually behind the scenes. I used to, and they all spoke English that I met. Never used an interpreter, uh, but it's very rare that I need an interpreter. It's usually my team that that takes care of that. Um, I did it back in the crypto days. I had an interpreter for Korea and China, but um, I was learning Chinese a few years ago. But um, yeah, it's um, yeah. I, I've been to China a lot. Ecom, a lot, a lot back a few years ago when I was in e-com um, and I would have an interpreter there and I would recommend an interpreter for anyone. If you're the person, even if they speak English, if they don't speak it well, it just makes it really difficult to connect. So I definitely recommend an interpreter for, um, for anyone that's building relationships in different countries. So you said you went to um, China a lot. So you opened in the China market before you attempted to go into the U.S., and no, that was just sourcing. So going to meet suppliers and find new products to sell. Okay. Do you sell the products in China? Not yet. No, it's just so difficult, especially if you source from China. It's very difficult to, to convince them to buy your product when it's made in their country and they sell it much cheaper. So the factories you work with, they probably sell locally and they sell at a very competitive price. So beating them just by putting your brand on there is very hard. China, I've researched China a lot. Oh, it's so difficult to be, get into that market. Like, I don't know where to start. I've looked at it many times. Um, uh, you talk about being risk averse and being too scared. Petrified of China. This is so fascinating to me because you take your products from Australia and you launch them all over the world, except for the U.S. and China, which, were which are two huge markets. So I think it's a huge learning lesson to anybody that's listening. You know, go figure out the process and do your research. And you really had your bets, but it's taking you more time to get into the bigger markets. People become billionaires in one market. There's people that are billionaires that only sell their products or service in Australia or in the U.K. or in Denmark or in Norway. So people ignore those markets, but they're very lucrative and they're also not as competitive because most companies ignore them. Because they're like, yeah, Denmark, population is tiny, you know, smaller than, 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 than LA. Maybe just focus on the US and there's a lot of fish there. But what happens, what, what people forget is that everyone wants to get into the US and China is even more extreme and more barriers to entry. So even though they're very lucrative, they're so difficult, the ROI becomes tricky. Yes. Yes. So I love that. I think that's a key, key takeaway is to make sure you're looking at some of those smaller companies because they can be huge. All right. So we're running out of time, but there's some questions that I always like to ask. The first is what's your favorite 
foreign word? Um, Hansamida. <laughs> I remember this, me and my brother uh, would talk, would say it in the UK. I forgot what it means. Hansamida either means hi or thank you very much in Korean. We spent a lot of time in Korea, um, but that was a few years ago. That was the last trip, me and my brother. So yeah, Hansamida. So it either means hi one, or Ayun, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you or hi. That's Hansamida and Ayun Hasayo. Probably I'm butchering it. I haven't said it in years. But those two words, I don't know, this reminds me of that trip with my brother in Korea. So I, I, I would say they're my two most, my favorite foreign words. <laughs> That's great. So what was the second one? Hanya? Hamsamida. Han no, that was the first. And then Han the, Samida. Oh, and then Ayun, 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 Ayun Hasayo. Hayun Hasado. Hasayo. Yo with the Y. And there's also one, one Russian word that I said, because I spent time in Serbia. I bought a place there as well. Um, and there was like, um, I forgot. I would like to say a lot of Russian. Ashdaya. Ashdaya is a Russian word that I like. It's such a cool word. It means dragon. And then you say it somewhere like, some, like, a, like, let's say a kid. It's annoying. You're like Ashdaya. Uh, like just annoying dragon. I think it means dragon literally, but they use it when they're spoiled kid or what a headache or stuff like Ashdaya. So that I, I would, I love that word as well. That was a, a Russian or, or Balkan word. I love that. <laughs> so it's Hasdaya. You just say it when they're when they're bothering you to to get them to stop, or that's how you describe a kid. Like you see him over there in the playground. Des describe, describe. And we have a kid like now. One of our uh, Jennifer, my dance partner, etc. She brought her sister who also works with us, and she came with her kid two days ago. They're going to stay here for two weeks in the in the in the in the castle villa, and she has her kid. So I'm going to go to the kid now and just call him Ashdaya. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's nice. It's just funny. <laughs> but give him a nice little nickname. Okay. And how about your favorite vacation? Um, I haven't had a vacation in so long, like so long. But I'd say my favorite one is uh, Bali many, many years ago, just because the peace and the, the peace of mind that I had there, the serenity that I had there, I miss that. And I hope to get it again soon. Oh, I hope you do too. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I love to watch your mind think what you've experienced, what you've done, the network that you've built. I mean, it really is hats off to you. Whatever age you are and however much money you have, when you come to the United States, come to Boston and I will introduce you around and show you around. It would be my pleasure. I'm very humbled to be on your show and you're such a great lady. Thank you so much, Wendy, and thank you for your time. Thank you. And for, so listeners, this has been a fabulous uh, uh, interview and discussion. If you know any entrepreneurs that are even thinking about going global or thinking about how to build their business, definitely share this one because he has some great advice. So uh, give it a star, give it a share, and we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.